David, we don't believe in year-end media awards, mm. but if we had to hand them out to each other, what would they be? Best sports media podcast of the year. I think uh, I'll, let, I'll allow you to accept that on behalf of me. I think we finished like fourth. <laughs> That's probably true. Yeah. Honorable mention, best sports media podcast of the year. <laughs> we still get a trophy, please? Yeah. Most overworked ringer employee, David Shoemaker. <laughs> People who don't sit in here and see the haunted look in your eyes as art requests come over the transom while you're recording this. Oh, Might miss that man. fact. At least I'm having fun. <laughs> Best segment we made up two minutes before it started. Does that go to the one we're doing right now? I was going to say all of them, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's right. You're hearing the result now because this is the Press Box on the Ringer Podcast Network. The Press Box is the media podcast where you're not allowed to use the phrase, here are some of the best pieces I wrote in 2017. David, this is our year-end edition. I'm excited. You're so excited. Three topics for your inspection and enjoyment uh, about the year that was in media. Number one, the journalist as hero. Number hurrah, two, hurrah. the journalist as menace. <laughs> and number three, why we're not doing a best of list. <laughs> I appreciate so that. That'll be kind of an anti-segment. Let's start with the journalist as hero. If there's any story about 2017 that I'll remember first and probably because it's the nicest. It is the one that Steven Spielberg has made a movie out of. <laughs> yes. The most highly classified documents of the war. The Times says 7,000 pages detailing how the White House has been lying about the Vietnam War for 30 years. The way they lied, those days have to be over. The heroic journalist, the truth teller, the one who's standing up to the president of the United States, even while the president of the United States tweets about them. Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, should we talk about how this happened? Yeah, go ahead. Take, take a stab at it. I don't because I don't, I don't think of journalists as particularly heroic characters. And it sort of took Donald Trump to make them into one. Right. Yeah. Every hero needs a villain. <laughs> and guess what? We got the biggest villain of all. I mean, it's funny because. I think now, especially, we live in this time where, and it's not, it certainly didn't start with Trump, where journalists are, you know, horribly in the tank, right? Yeah. For the for the liberal New York Times, the failing New York Times, for yeah. the liberal Washington Post, and yet somebody like Maggie Haberman <laughs> has carved out this this niche in the popular imagination, and and you know probably deservedly so, or mostly deservedly so, sure. as somebody who's holding the president to account. And holding his feet to the fire and, and breaking news out of the White House, which leaks like a sieve. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, I don't remember I don't remember that model during the Obama administration. No, I mean, I think that uh, I don't know if it's in the popular imagination so much as in rea or as much as it is in reality. But it, it, it's, uh, you know, certainly there's uh, during the Obama administration, um, you know, the opposition news, the news that was holding his feet to the fire, that, that would have been holding his feet to the fire, be it Fox News or, or whoever else, I think was a little bit more um, of a caricature in their way. You know, I mean, it wasn't the same. It it, it wasn't it, it the, there was no Maggie Haberman of, uh, you know, the Fox News primetime block. No, it was also because Obama was less venal than Trump. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is, right. It's like to set up the journalist as hero. 
you have to have somebody who's just doing and let, let's say let's say even if you like Trump, even if you're in that shrinking 35 sure. percent that just has more crazy news out of it. Yeah. Out of the White House that the journalists can break. Right. I mean, I think the to the extent that, you know, uh, there, there's a lot of Trump fans that are excited no matter what Trump does because he's, you know, messing with the status quo. He's breaking, he's destroying norms. And I think that uh, for a lot of journalists, Maggie Haberman's a great example who have been around for a while covering this sort of thing. Um, it's the the kind of thumbing your nose at the norms, whether deliberately or not, that makes some of the best copy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a couple of models of the journalist as he rose circa 2017. Yeah. There's, I would say, Haberman and like David Farenhold of the Washington Post. Uh-huh. And that's really the old model, right? Yeah. This is a great newspaper reporter who has great sources or is doing really smart investigative legwork mm-hmm. and is pulling news out of the White House. Yeah. The Trump administration has also done another one, which is person who is there when Trump official does something totally insane. Right. Like Ryan Lizza, who was recently let go by the New Yorker. Uh-huh. Like Anthony Scaramucci calling, calling him up. And, sure. And again, good for Ryan for recording that and putting that out there. But that's just like I was just a witness to something that was just completely insane and inexplicable. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of that. It's, uh, I mean, it's uh, with. It seems like you just get a, you know, an inch into the Trump administration, into their circ- into their orbit, and and sometimes, uh, you know, you're gifted with what would in any other administration be a time altering uh, story. Yeah, I, I mean, and also, I mean, let's not forget that that there's also the the journalist is hero. Um, when, when I mean, there, there are people like Katie Turr who covered Trump throughout the campaign, and, another good and, one, and and was you know victim to direct attacks from by him on the campaign trail, you know, over a microphone in a room full of rabid Trump fans, and she's you know, I mean, she's a a, a I mean, a, a great journalist and and an emerging you know TV talent, um, but she's got a book deal now because of this that just came out. She's I mean, part of her part of her part of the legend around Katie Tour Tour is that she. Uh, you know, was had to stare down Trump, you know, and 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 the 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 his you know various attacks on her, and whether or not they were good natured or or not, you know, she was part of that narrative. And I'd say that that's a different model, which is the person who was attacked by Trump and didn't flinch. Yeah, like that's Jamel Hill too. Yes, right. That's Katie Turr. That's mm-hmm. some people that kind of survived the whole thing on the trail and and you know didn't 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 flinch in a withering assault. From the president of the United States. Sure. That's an amazing model. Um, uh, some more models. I think we all make fun of, you know, I went to uh, rural uh, Alabama to meet the last person who supports Trump peace, right? That became a, you know, figure of uh-huh. comedy on the Internet. But I do think the one, the kind of thing about going into America and explaining these movements that have now been given new life or at least new support. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's like Luke O'Brien writing about uh, the making of an American Nazi in the Atlantic. Oh, yeah. You know, this idea that there's this fringe out there that we don't understand and we want to understand it more. Uh And we see the we see like the the muffed version of that in The New York Times. And there are good good versions of that that, you know, don't pretty things up and don't, you know, do the kind of cute sidestep, but also but actually, you know, explain how these things came to the fore. And that's been a kind of fascinating, near heroic uh, journalistic mold in 2017. 
Yeah, I mean that that's totally true. There was the Vice, the the, the widely circulated Vice video at the Charlottesville protest. Oh yeah, so that, uh, Ellie Reeve. Yeah, yeah. That and we're, I mean, she like you know literally stared this guy down for I'm sure many many more hours than we saw on that video. Um, I mean, there is a certain just sort of like very old fashioned bravery that's built into that sort of that sort of journalism. Yeah, the other one I'd say as a hero is kind of the cable news truth teller. Yeah, like Jake Tapper. Has has this all this new gravitas? Yeah, it's true. In the Trump administration, like he was always good, but really the last year or two, you know, when he's standing up there, you know, sort of just directly contradicting Trump. Uh, you know, what was his what was his great interview the last this year with? Did he have a great Trump official interview? Who he was making look? Oh well, it was because Roy Moore's yeah. uh, spokesman, right? Like that was a good, that was a great moment for him. That was yeah, that was a, that was a it's a great recent example. Yeah, I Chris mean, Hayes is another one. You know, anybody who's kind of it's like it's kind of the old. This is why I kind of miss Keith Olbermann once in a while. It's the old Olbermann thing, you know. Yeah, look into the camera and just let this guy have it. Yeah, but I think the distinction between Jake Tapper and Keith Olbermann or whatever, and this kind of goes without saying, is that you know there's a more of an impartiality with your Tapper characters. And, uh, you know, I think in the era of Trump, I, you know, there's a lot of power to, it's not, I mean, speaking truth to power kind of takes on a new meaning, right? Because when you're, when you're actively, when you're, when your task is just saying the, saying, describing reality in the face of an administration that, that seems to be at odds with it more often than not, um, it's there, there is just a sort of, you know, rather than just the, the traditional, you know, golf clap at a at a piece well reported we have a sort of standing ovation <laughs> but just think about how amazing it is that you've made the cable news host <laughs> into this kind of not comic character yeah the old chris matthews model of like well this is kind of weirdly entertaining mm-hmm. maybe or bill o'reilly to like oh wow this guy's getting some answers or gal this guy th- this person's getting some answers this person is this what they're saying is really i think brian stelter's probably in that category sure. on cnn yeah and on the flip Don side lemon has had moments of that which is kind of also near really, miraculous yeah i mean and on the flip side you know we talked about tucker carlson on the many episodes ago on this show but he's sort of taken on the mantle of the you know heroic truth teller for the other segment of you know for red state <laughs> right. america yes. you know i mean the, the, they the, don't they don't want to talk about hillary clinton anymore just cuz she's not in power or running for president right but i'm going to talk about her yeah there's a, there's definitely a red cape aspect to what he's doing there uh i would create another heroic journalist category for people who dunked on trump on twitter <laughs> or, dunked, or dunked on conservatives on twitter <laughs> You mean I feel like Jeb Lund sort of had that corner of sure. American life. Sure, a lot, yeah. But now we're we're all Jeb Lund now. <laughs> like everybody, it's like you earn your spurs by by just having a really funny, or you know, it's it could be James O'Keefe, right? It could be yeah. Mike Cernovich, right? You just like tee him up, baby. Here we go. Sure. I mean, and part of it, I mean, it's it sort of relates to the overlooked, I mean, overworked Twitter joke of the week. If you can be out there first, and if, if you were a you know a person with a platform and you can be out there first with just the most perfect dunk. Then that you know that that might be on your tombstone. Yeah, I'd also say there's another yet another category for like, you know, just again I don't know if this came to the fore if it's just being done really well right now, but it's just sort of the really good magazine piece that explains some aspect of Trumpism. Yes, Jason Zangerly and on Carter Page as we sit here, uh-huh. um, Big New Yorker piece on Mike Pence. Yeah, which is really sort of interesting and, and helped understand a lot of stuff. Molly Ball wrote over the last year about Democrats and Republicans alike. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kay Coppins at the Atlantic. Like, there's just like this that that genre to me has been kind of reinvigorated. Or maybe I'm just like maybe it's we're all just pouring through it more now. 
Yeah. That's going to have been kind of, an, kind of a heroic mold. I mean, I think certainly in the era of Trump, those things are on the, the you know, rate the, the community radar more so than they might have been in, in under previous administrations. Either passed around like Samistat, you know, like here, here's the truth, yeah. you know, read this New Yorker piece. And le- I mean, and we're le- mentioning all those names. Let's not leave out Tanasi Coates, who, who in some ways sort of blazed the trail of, uh, you know, the long form essay or work of journalism that, that, in the modern world, in the modern saying, media world, not not not, 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 not all, James Baldwin. Yeah, right? no, no, exactly. But but that that you know can argue a case down to the minute detail and sort of get everybody who engages with it, and then subsequently engages with Twitter or the online reaction to it, sort of standing and and at, at attention. He's his own category, sure, of heroic journalism. The truth in the Trump era. Yeah, I mean, I still remember and in the Obama I, era. I still remember yeah. when he wrote the case for reparations. Yeah, having been a veteran of the New Republic, which <laughs> let us say did not endorse the case for reparations right. when I was there, and everybody all of a sudden was like, "Yeah, that sounds right." <laughs> and you're like, what? Wow. That not was a, not everybody that, said that. But not yeah. everybody said that, but lots of people on the left who were skeptical of that idea came sure. over to it. And it showed just his amazing power yeah. and, you know, and his amazing writing ability and the way he could make arguments. Yeah. I mean, and and it, it, the one of the kind of undercurrents behind all of this is is just the sort of, uh, you know, the the black and white nature of journalism in general now that depending on what side of the political spectrum you're on, you have, uh, you know, your heroes and your villains, everything is split, you know? So you talk, you mentioned Jamel Hill earlier. She's obviously not strictly, I mean, a politics journalist by any real definition, but, um, you know, she took a bunch of big hits this year, but became more of a hero in the process. Oh, sure. And I think that you see that on, on you know, in, in politics and in sports media too. I mean, it's, it's uh, if the, you know, there's going to be people taking swings at you. And if you can stand up to it, then it's sort of, that's in some ways sort of legitimizes the entire journalistic endeavor. The last heroic journalist micro genre, uh-huh. got to be the conservative apostate, right? Oh, Charlie Sykes, yeah, uh, David Frum, long, long print. time, long time apostate. Yeah. yeah, because it's like somebody. I was thinking it was actually David Frum wrote about this the other day that like there was this group of hardcore never Trumpers, uh-huh. and a lot of them have become have kind of melted away. Yeah, some of them have just become Trump fans because that's where the market is. Yeah, and some of them have become you know the kind of thing of let's just attack liberals all the time. Mm-hmm. Like Trump is you know Trump is terrible, but. Um, your argument is a few degrees off here. So I'm just going to attack you because my audience likes me attacking the libs. Mm-hmm. But the true conservative apostate sure, who is kind of hung in there when the Fox News contract draw, dries up uh-huh. or he gets attacked and, and suddenly realizes he doesn't have an audience. Uh-huh. That's an interesting type of 2017. Yeah. I mean, just you can you can look at the conservative, the conservative talking heads that have all found homes on MSNBC, for example. I mean, you have Jennifer Rubin, who's, you know, who's got a regular seat over there. Does Hugh not Hewitt. see her being an apostate. Yeah. I mean, there, Hugh Hewitt has a show on MSNBC, although he's the first, I mean, he's probably the the, the least of, you know, in the apostate category of all the people that we've mentioned, he's still, you know, defender of the conservative cause. Yeah. He basically just works for MSNBC. Like, yeah, that's his, that's his apostasy. <laughs> exactly. But, there, but there's, you know, there's a there's a lot of those people over there. David, we're we're recording this before Christmas, so we will not have an overworked Twitter joke of the week this week. Uh, you know, people are people are shutting off their uh, phones in disgust right now. <laughs> we thought we'd try a little something new. 
Call it funny headline crystal ball. <laughs> you ready for this? All right. How's this going to work? Well, you and I are both obsessed with punny headlines, which by, by which I mean pun-filled headlines. <laughs> yes. We're the only two people in the world who live together and just kind of made up <laughs> weird puns of weird pun headlines and just gave them to each other. Like, I on hope a couch. that it's not true, but maybe. Yeah. Maybe we're, 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 we're carrying the flame. Anyway, what we're going to do is read each other a brief a brief sort of summary of a news story that's happening in the future. All right. And then the other one's going to have to guess the funny headline of this hypothetical <laughs> news story from the future. Are you ready? Okay, I got it. I got okay. it. Okay. Here we go. You ready? Sure. February 1st, 2018. Okay. This that's is not soon. very far off in the future. A semi-disgraced former Minnesota senator runs for the seat he vacated despite the protests of women and Senate colleagues. Ooh. What right. is the funny headline? All right, I got the context. Um, I, oof, I'm going to go with. All right, I'm going to go with Franken colon. My dear, I don't give a damn. Wow, you got it. Wow, thank you. Thank Drilled you. it. Perfect. Wow, that was amazing. All right, all right, I got one for you. Okay, go for it. Let's say this is. September 1st, uh, 2037. Okay. Wow. 20 years from now. All right. A disgraced former morning show host is spotted in the French Riviera. Wow. A disgraced former morning show host yeah. is spotted in the French Riviera. Yes. What is the funny headline? All right. I think I got it. All right. Where in the world is Matt Lauer? <laughs> All right, that is correct. Oh, that yes. is correct. Got it. All right, got another one for you. June 1st, 2025. Wow, this is a shocking story. Former President Trump apologizes to and announces he would like to enter into a business relationship with noted NFL protester Colin Kaepernick. Wow. Um, that's a that's a heck of a story. Apologizes to and wants to enter into a business relationship with Colin Kaepernick. It's a great scoop, whoever gets this in uh, 2025. Um, all right, let me think. Trump, Kaepernick. Put on your, get your, get your puns working here, buddy. Um, man, uh, oh wait, I got it. The Art of the Kneel. Yes, that is uh, correct. K-N-E-E-L, uh, The wow. Art of the Kneel. Uh, oh my god! About that one. All right, you La just got promoted at the ringer. <laughs> All right, last one. Um, let me try. Okay, here we go. December twenty first, twenty one seventeen. Whoa! It's a like hundred years from I now. I was going to say a full century from now. A hundred years from now, a group of devoted fans offer some touching words at the funeral of our very own sports guy, Bill Simmons. What? Yeah, this is at at the funeral of Bill Simmons. A group of his diehard fans get up to uh, give him, to send him off in the most emotional way. But this possible. is a hundred years from now. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, this is way down the line. Way All down right. the line. A group of devoted fans offers touching words at the funeral of the sports guy Bill Simmons. What would be the funny headline? I think I got it. Okay, you ready? Yes, go. Yup. These are my eulogists. <laughs> that is You're correct. Right. We will accept that. Yes. Drilled it, baby. All right. That is funny headline crystal ball. Can't <laughs> wait to play that with you again in 2018. Our second topic today, David, is 
Another 2017 retrospective, the journalist, not as hero, but as menace. Ooh. So that's the flip side, right? Yeah. If we had journalists canonized and lionized and, and as brave truth tellers, mm-hmm. we also saw them shat upon, if not fired. Right. Uh, and called all kinds of, of things like frauds and in the tank politically and everything else. Once again, I know this is going to surprise you as an observer of the media, but this starts with Donald Trump or flows from Donald Trump. Right. The failing New York Times. Um, all the stories that, you know, people in the media won't investigate, mm-hmm. <laughs> which are the stories that aren't about him. Yeah. All the lying, quote unquote, the journalists are doing. Uh-huh. And it's it's funny because in, and I'm sure these things are directly connected. But in the year where journalists were lionized like they haven't been in a long time, mm-hmm. they were also smeared. Yeah. Like they weren't in a long in a long time. Sure. And that's amazing to me that we saw both as like the mass of comedy and tragedy at the same time. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and even on the flip side, I mean, the, there was, uh, you know, I mean, the, the the takes on on conservative media establishments like Fox News or even, you know, so there were some Fox Sports personalities that were once sort of, you know, hand waved away as almost comedy are now being engaged with as uh, a sort of malicious misdirection. Yeah, because it seems like the stakes are bigger. Yeah. I mean, sure. in the case of somebody like Clay Travis, it seems like he's talking about things and it's that aren't about sports. Uh-huh. And he's not having hot opinions about Marcus Mariota. Yeah. He's having hot opinions about race. Yeah. And often despicable opinions. Yeah. Um, but yeah, everything seems more freighted. Mm-hmm. Everything seems more, you know. It just it just feels like there are bigger things in the balance. Yeah. Even in our little corner of the world. I mean, I think that, you know, talking about the journalist as hero or as, you know, villain, um, in some ways they go to the same thing, which is the sort of like humanization of the journalist. Right. And they're not this isn't a new idea. But, um, you know, if you're if your goal is to tear down the, the journalistic establishment, it's much easier to point out the the foibles of specific people or, or, or people's, you know, inherent biases, uh, than it is. I mean, and, and, and in doing so you can take on an entire industry. Right. And that's the motive here, right? Right. To take away the quote unquote MSM yeah, or, or, you know, sort of toxify it and destabilize it so much uh-huh. that people just don't listen to you instead of listening to the MSM, yeah. whoever you are. And it's happening at this moment. And we'll get to this in a minute, too, where lots and lots of people are getting laid off. Yeah. And lots of media institutions aren't making any money. Mm-hmm. So the MSM is destabilizing itself. And then it has this sort of, you know, roundhouse left. Sure. From the political establishment. Yeah. I mean, and I think whether the, whether those things are related or not is, you know, a, a much longer conversation. But certainly if you are, uh, you know, if you're if you find yourself uh, fighting against the mainstream media, then you know, a, a round of layoffs is an easy thing to applaud and to apply to your argument. Sure. Well, you just, you just, you just come in with, hey, this is the receipt. They're <laughs> yeah. too liberal. Now they had to lay off, you know, 100 employees. <laughs> exactly. We saw that with the ESPN. Absolutely. Layoffs twice. We saw that at various times. Now they're sort of kicking ass, but the New York Times and Washington Post, mm-hmm. like, ah. Oh, America's finally decided it can't trust these news organizations. Like, or, you know, the media is just really changing and. Yeah. That, that's also what happened. Sure. <laughs> Sometimes you get to find a cheaper office. That doesn't mean that the entire enterprise is crumbling. Yeah, they become they become data points. I've been amazed 
I think it's really funny because about like f- when I was starting in journalism 17 years ago, uh-huh. I was amazed that when the in the early blogosphere, that press criticism was like a huge topic. Yeah. And more specifically, the political bias of the press okay, was yeah. a huge topic. And we're talking like there's like a handful of influential political blogs at the time. Mm-hmm. This is the era of Instapundit. Yeah. Mickey Kaus, people yeah. like that. But those people were really obsessed with <laughs> the lefty media. Yeah. And and again, partly because they wanted to be the they wanted to be listened to and not those guys, but also I'm sure some of it was genuine perceived quote unquote bias. Mm-hmm. And that topic, and then you have people like Bernie Goldberg, you know, flogging that thing. Sure. Just all kinds of it's it has been a steady topic. But it's amazing to me to see that basically just become this huge thing that the president of the United States is tweeting about. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, it, like that is his one of his many, many obsessions, but it is probably like top five. We talked last week about the sort of fan becoming the journalist and you're switching places with the journalist. And this isn't fandom in any sort of direct way, but it's definitely like one of the things that the Internet has allowed us to do is, uh, I mean, there's more space to write about more things and to find and to discover these avenues that readers are interested in reading about or that, you know, other writers are interested in reading about. And a lot of what, you know, Instapundit or Mickey were writing about back in the day were things that journalists would talk about at the bar. I mean, this is a going part of conversation. Uh, You know, now, I mean, the reason why the press box, this podcast exists, you know, could probably be traced back to conversations we've had at the bar where someone standing nearby would say, you guys should do a podcast. You know, I mean, like it's it's a (laughs) it's a it's a part of the it's a part of the media world that just didn't exist because. You know, there was a limited number of pages in the newspaper, and there it was unclear if there was an appetite for it. I don't, I don't exactly remember that happening, but it's a nice sentiment. <laughs> it was the waiter. He came over <laughs> and he was like, "You guys should have a podcast." And also, we're closing up, so please leave and go do your podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, that's certainly part of it. I've been amazed. We we are both um, very small, very dim stars in this uh, <laughs> sky yeah, of journalism. On dim, yes, um, <laughs> but. That we, I don't know about you, but I get like MAGA tweets. Yes, so absolutely. The liberal Curtis, mm-hmm. um, you know, MAGA hashtag. Yeah. Like what, how did I get, how did I get drawn into this? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's just amazing. It's like there's, there's one converse, one crazy batshit conversation happening about journalism. Mm-hmm. It's not nuts that Maggie Haberman would get dragged into it or sure. Jake Tapper, but you and me, yeah. but it's true. Everybody does. Yeah. Everybody does. I mean, to be when when we cover ESPN or, or Jamel Hill in particular, um, yeah, there's a certain there's a certain Bar segment. Stool. Yeah, there's a certain segment for whom the only the only appropriate commentary is loud cheering or booing. Uh huh. And and to uh, to actually try to parse out the details of anything is is seen as biased. I saw that when like Dave Portnoy was having a party when John Skipper resigned the other day. Uh huh. You know, just like on I mean a virtual party. Sure. And and he had some tweets along the lines of, I know this, you know, you you may say I shouldn't do this, but eh, you right. know, this is this is my anime. And I, that feels like it's all tied up in the same political cultural stew. I mean, they've got a specific gripe, which is about Barstool Van Talk, but it just feels like it's all of a piece, you know? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that's a p- part of being a, a, me- a part of being a public figure in 2017 for many people is is picking your enemies and and imagining a battle whether or not one exists you know you you have to you wait you wage the battle uh whether or not the other side is is actively engaging in it my old boss and spiritual advisor jack schaefer likes to point out that 
trust in journalists has been going down for a really long time. Uh And it's pretty much mirrored the decline in trust in lots of American institutions like the military and the church and all those kinds of things, right? Mm -hmm. Like Americans just have less trust. So, and he's always made the argument, which, which I subscribe to, which is that that's okay if people are really, really skeptical of journalists. You know, we should have to earn their trust. Yeah. Um, which isn't to say all the attacks are fair or good or warranted, but it's just like it, it, it people don't have journalists. And when we talk about journalists, heroes and journalists, villains, journalists shouldn't necessarily be exalted. No, you know, when the moment you, because you have a byline somewhere, well, especially now, I think that, that I think by and large, you know, political journalism in particular was caught flat footed by a lot of the byproducts of Trump's campaign and eventual presidency. Um, because they, they should have been listening to Jack Schaefer. They, there were a lot of people who didn't, who, who thought that the exalted institution of journalism still existed in the way that it did in, you know, movies like The Post. You know, I mean, <laughs> that the that the most that that just the most extreme version of the you know the pure journalistic enterprise. Um, was how they were viewed. And that certainly, you know, was proven to not be true. It's also funny how the kind of shellacking that places like the New York Times have taken and some of the cable news networks mm-hmm. has resulted in a lot of cases in record ratings, right? Yeah. Or, you know, the the Times, which is like constantly having money troubles mm-hmm. over the last 10 years, you know, trying to borrow money and all these kinds of things. Yeah. All of a sudden, their new publisher the other day is standing up before uh, the assembled group and saying, we don't have any, we don't have any layoffs coming anymore or any buyouts uh-huh. to take us to a targeted number. It doesn't mean anybody's not going to, nobody's going to get fired. Right. But we have this kind of thing, you know, and um, I thought that was fascinating. And it's, it's a part of this. It's like, if you demonize these people, there's gonna be a certain segment of the population. that's like, oh, oh, they're your enemies. Great. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm going to subscribe now. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We saw Roy Moore, you know, in the Washington Post, right? That was a huge Feather in the cap of the Washington Post to be able to report. And even though Roy Moore saying people are framing me and this isn't true and all that stuff, it just makes people want to subscribe to the Post even more. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can't imagine. There's probably – the New York Times probably couldn't have had a better ad for renewing subscriptions than Donald Trump constantly saying that they're failing. Yeah, it's great advertising, yeah. right? Absolutely. We get, a, we get a huge Twitter account <laughs> tweeting about us every, like, every 24 hours. And- yeah. Yeah. And by the way, when you talk about the flip side of the we talk about the flip side of the hero, you know, mm-hmm. there's also the flip side of the of the journalist villain. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's all if you go into conservative media or if you go into people that are just sort of Trump friendly media, uh-huh. they have their own ideas sure. right, about who is, you know, who's bad and who's good and that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, former former hosts that have betrayed us and, you know, kind of <laughs> things like that. And it's just very funny. Yeah, it's definitely true. And I mean, you can see uh, this is not, uh, you know, limited to the conservative side, but you can you you definitely see people who are happy to tweet, you know, laughing at the demise of the New York Times and then, you know, retweeting the New York Times five minutes later when the story fits their narrative. Yeah, this has been this great thing lately where people have said, I wish was it was it Trump today or came up as Trump senior or junior who Uh said, hey, CNN and NBC, maybe you should investigate this and literally tweeted out a link to an NBC News piece, <laughs> as Hallie Jackson pointed out. Uh-huh. That was great. That's that's become an amazing thing. Yeah. Where you use, yeah, you use something in the mainstream media to tweet about how the mainstream media is not covering something. Yeah, exactly. It's like, how did, how, wait, you just, you just linked to this. Yeah. I always love that. Yeah. Before we start praising and complaining about media top 10 lists, let's pause for a quick break. Podcast fans, we stepped up the Ringer's video production in 2017 with weekly videos like Cousin Sal's Best Bet, 
slow news day, NBA desktop, no BS, table reads, director's commentary, and Captain Morgan's make-believe casino, as well as our video podcasts and many movies like Take Hunter, Ringer 360, and Claytheism. Coming in 2018, we got new stuff. A weekly video mailbag from Bill Simmons, Mallory out of a hat. I'm very intrigued about what that could be. And a slew of other new digital shows. Don't miss anything. Just go to theringer.com slash video, or even better, please subscribe to our channel at youtube.com slash theringer. Our third topic today, David. Okay. Professional press critics around this time of year have mm. a little tradition. Actually, it's not even just press critics. It's everybody. Everybody. Best of, yes. Worst of, yes. Media awards, mm-hmm. top ten list. Oh, we We're not going to do that. No, we don't want to do that. We don't believe in that. No, no, we don't. And you know, let me tell you why we don't believe in it. In case you don't know, go ahead. <laughs> I, I just find this to be one of. Let, let me say this: a couple of things. Movie lists, top ten movies of the year. Knock yourself out. Yeah. Yeah, my favorite books. I, I find that a little weird and silly, but doing it about journalism has always struck me as just kind of one of the most bizarre things ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in recent years, I saw the um, Mediaite had some uh, the top 75 most influential people in news and media. Yeah. Did you realize that Trevor Noah uh, was one step, one spot behind Savannah Guthrie? Is that, <laughs> is that important to you to know no. that? No, the Trevor Noah is slightly less influential than Savannah Guthrie. That's not necessary information. Yeah. Um, another one uh, is another thing I would not like to do this time of year is the predictions for journalism for 2018. Ugh. Funny headline, crystal ball aside. <laughs> I always felt this way about sports predictions is when you do this, you're just you're just inviting the writers uh, that you employ and pay well, hopefully pay well, to just look like a jackass. Yeah. Predict the NFL games, and then they get them all wrong. It's like, wow, why should I listen to that guy anymore? Of course, because no one can predict the NFL games well. Right. So I'm just sort of against predictions, but media predictions are really funny. What? How many media predictions would anyone have gotten right about this year? Uh, I mean, they might have gotten some right, but they if they were trying to, you know, put things in the top 10, probably zero. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could have predicted some media Trump interaction sort of stuff or whatever. <laughs> yeah, but that like, would have been highly predictable. Yeah. But as far as the things that we've talked about on this show since we've been doing it the past several months, I mean, we could we would have predicted about none of them. No. Matt Lauer wouldn't still be the host of the Today Show. No. John Skipper still wouldn't be the president of ESPN. No. You know, the kind of think the specific kinds of things that the New York Times would have been able to break about Trump. You know, we might have said it would have been a really wild newsy white house yeah but we don't think we would have been able to predict all those things all that well yeah i mean if we had pitched this podcast a year ago and said we want to do a podcast that covers harvey weinstein and jamel hill i don't think anybody would have had any interest <laughs> in putting it on the those would have been our, those would be our two great subjects of 2017 yeah yeah it's funny too i mean i often think you know when we do these lists there's a the whole Best American sports writing thing, which comes out every year, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, in a younger, more uh, innocent age, I was, you know, just thought, oh, my gosh, it would be great to be in there. I'm going to send them stories and all this stuff. And it's funny because at best, those collections are here's a good here's a bunch of stories that you like to read. Um, but the the sort of downside of them is it becomes like, here's a definition of best. Yeah. And you get this definition of best, which is pounded into people's heads year after year. Mm -hmm. 
which is a very, very peculiar, small definition of what best sports writing looks like. Well, sure. And I mean, I think in the, you know, I agree with you, top 10 lists, end of year awards, have have fun. I did some year end awards on my other podcast just the other day. But there's certainly a, a, a tenor that has changed, you know, the tenor has changed in that um, best American sports writing or, you know, your local films, film critics top 10 list are very valuable if for, for saying like, here are some things you might have missed that are the best things of the year, right? But when it becomes, you know, when it, when it, when it, when it, it's winnowed down to like a Twitter argument, it's not about things you might have missed or, or, or holding these things up as the best. It's about why my opinion's right and yours is wrong. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, or why my idea of journalism and is it's, right. And if and it's just wrong. another, and if it's just another avenue for hot takes, you know, I'm going to put Deadpool in my best movies of the year list just to see what happens. You know, don't at me. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's that, that's that's a whole different enterprise, you know. I mean, you see the, the, the proliferation of these things all around the Internet of all the different sorts. Um, you know, for a lot of them, for movie lists, for even book lists, for TV shows, whatever else. I mean, in some ways, this is the most important thing that one of the most important things that a journalist is going to do all year, right? Kind of distilling the entire year down into one package and making, you know, a sort of a broader <laughs> argument of, of quality. Impo- I don't know if it's no, the most no, no, but important. But, but one, yeah. of, one of, it'll be certainly one of the most read. I mean, this is, it's not, it's... One of the most read, yes. Yeah, but but that's the whole thing, is if, if, the, if the purpose is, if the, if the purpose is, you know, a, a lauding great art or, you know, great performance in a field, that feels like one thing. But, you know, if, if, the, if the purpose is more crassly clickbait that's something else well it's like as journalists like i think we're taught we don't want to we don't want to be reductive mm-hmm. if somebody said brian come up with the top 10 sports writers of all time and rank yeah. them i would just say like y- you pay me to not do silly things like that mm-hmm. right you pay me to not assemble weirdo lists yeah. and stuff like that but if the same journalist let's say let's call him brian <laughs> found a list where he was in the top 10 or top 100 of oh, anything you yes. say well, oh well they got it really got it right thank goodness <laughs> somebody finally finally recognized my talent That's like great. we want when we do journalism awards the kind of reductive thinking we reject when yeah. we write we embrace it totally because all, because we won all the movie, we're on the list uh, all, all the movie reviewers around the world who have rejected the star rating system or the thumbs up <laughs> thumbs down rating system Putting their put putting their you know the entire breadth of their year of criticism into a top ten list does feel a little bit unnecessarily reductive. Yeah, well, I used to love it when every movie critics top ten list start with a sense. Well, it would be impossible to rank them in order. <laughs> well, it would be possible, and then they would just pick ten movies. Yeah, so you sort of have ranked the movies. Sure. I love that. Just like I'm so uncomfortable with this, but I have to. I'm just making this. I'm making this top ten list as as good as I possibly can. I'm making the best of a bad situation. <laughs> sort of false embarrassment of that everything. was always my favorite. I also like the sort of auto top ten list that we now have on Twitter, uh-huh. which I saw a billion times this week. Yeah. The um, you know, the like self top ten. Yes. Here are some of the best pieces I wrote in 2017. Oh yeah! Wow. I mean, I will forgive young journalists. Who are trying to, you know, stamp their print. But like, honestly, seriously, your favorite pieces of the year that you wrote. Yeah. Like my own top 10 list. Oh, maybe I, mean, I just I can't. No, I'm, maybe, I'm out. Maybe I, mean, I don't a, think so. Maybe as a Christmas gift, I'll just rank yours for you. And, and <laughs> please don't put that around the Internet. Please don't. Um, I saw Albert Bernenko had a very funny thing where he just had a he um, he said, here's a link to the top. The best pieces I wrote. And you went to it and it was just a bear that was 
shall we say, <laughs> touching itself. And you know, I think you know the piece of video I mean. You know, oh man, we're not going to have overworked Twitter joke of the week on this episode, but uh, you know, one uh, the winner probably would be also the the uh, the ironic top ten list or just the 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 header of top ten top ten reasons why fill in the blank, and then just there's only one. Oh yeah. That's a good joke. Yeah, the takeoff on the top 10 list that makes a joke about top 10 lists and the subject is good. Yeah. How many top 10 lists did you actually consume this year? Um, shockingly few. I mean, I this, you know, Christmas, as we're recording, this is around the corner. I usually save my top 10 list reading for time spent in airports. But uh, when I was in college, I loved top 10 lists. Oh, yeah. I was so excited to get like EW mm-hmm. and see what theirs were. The Ebert list every year was really big. Yeah, it's probably because you just didn't have very much information about things. Yeah, in that in that tender, pre-internet, mostly pre-internet age. Yeah, and so you'd just be like, I guess we had some internet for reading Roger Ebert, but um, you'd just be like, oh my gosh, you know, here are like ten movies and like four of them I've never heard of. Yeah, that's just it. I mean, there's it used to be about informing people. You know, top ten books of the year. You you would have heard of, you know, three of them or something like that. Um. And now anybody that's interested enough to read the top 10 list has already heard of all of the things you're going to be mentioning. And all you're really doing is agitating for your point of view. Yeah. Books is a tough one to rank. Yeah, It's course. like journalism. You know, it's like, here's a here's a great sports profile. And here's a piece about uh, that two people did about civilians killed in Iraq. You know, yeah. like how how am I going to <laughs> rank these? Acts and any of rank. I mean, in any any anything about writing on when there's that many options out there. It's it's I mean, just the the submissions, you know, the, 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 you know, for your consideration list is basically just like what's been retweeted the most or something like, you know, just the things that are going to be on your radar are so skewed by the way you consume media anyway, mm-hmm. that it would just be, it's impossible to really rank anything. Yeah. I do like it now when there's kind of some, you know, excitement about a top 10 list mm-hmm. appearing. First, I think Simmons pointed this out that top 10 lists have just started appearing in like early December. Yeah. It's like Christmas starts earlier every year. Christmas top 10 lists start earlier every mm-hmm. year. You got to get those clicks. Yeah. I mean, like the New York, I feel the New York Times movie one was like December 1st or something like that. Yeah. It was really, really early. Mm-hmm. So you're like, whoa, I haven't, I haven't even seen, like, I haven't even a chance to see the Christmas movies yet. Uh. I remember as a kid, by the way, when those came out, I was so confused about how all these movies were on it that hadn't come out yet. Yeah. Just didn't understand. Yeah. It was like December 15th. Yeah. And I was like, that movie opens nationally January 3rd. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, those it's are, on the top 10 list? Those are more innocent times, Brian. And the critic hasn't even reviewed it yet? Hasn't yeah. like written a proper review of it yet? That was just so <laughs> mind-blowing about top 10 lists. Yeah. No, no. It's. I mean, now it, would be, it, would, it seems like dereliction of duty to have seen a movie and to not have not immediately tweeted about it. Yeah. I mean, and it's also, there's just people in the world, especially our little world of journalism, that are just unrankable. Like there was a slate piece about how Zach Lowe is the best sports writer in America. Uh huh. I remember. Um, and the thing about Zach is like, how would you rank Zach's pieces over the course of the year? Mm. I mean, you know, how would you put Zach in a in a ranking? No, pretty sure he's never been in those best sports writing books. You know, no, no reason that's he not gets the like best. the Body of Work Award, right? But that doesn't get reprinted, right? Because they're so they're so perfect and useful and smart and well written in that moment. Mm-hmm. But. You might not want to read it five years later like you'd want to read a profile of some athlete. Yeah. Absolutely. So why but why is that worse? You know, it's not worse. It's just different and and you know, and perhaps less durable in terms of selling a book. Yeah. You know, but that but that that doesn't mean anything. So there's just certain things that are just like or you know, like frankly, if like there's important acts of journalism, like one of them might be a Woj tweet. <laughs> like that was really important. Or one might be that Adam Schefter and Mort thing about 
you know, Roger Goodell wanting a private jet as part of his, you know, retirement package from the NFL. Like, that was a wild, amazing story. Absolutely. But how do you, how do you, you know, but it's not like no one's going to award, a, you know, award something like that for like literary no. quality or rereadability, but you'll remember that from 2017. Yeah. There's the, the purple prose is at a minimum, but the uh, significance is, is up there. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we have, uh, that's our non-awards list, David. I feel good about that. Yeah. Should I say what I'm doing for the first couple months of 2018? Oh, Just yeah. Put that out there. Yeah, for everybody should... still listening after all this, they deserve to know. Yeah, my uh, <laughs> best best trip would <laughs> be living in Australia for a couple months. It's going to be great. And writing about Australia with my family mm-hmm. um, and some other stuff out there. We are going to endeavor to continue the press box from abroad. But if you hear me speaking in a slightly strange accent, <laughs> requesting uh, some unusual foods, that's the reason. David, have a great uh, have a great end of the year, buddy. This has been fun. I'm gonna uh, rewatch Crocodile Dundee and Crocodile Dundee Two and think about you. <laughs> Don't forget Crocodile Dundee in Hollywood either. <laughs> oh, yeah, the important, the rarely seen number three movie in that series. He's David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Thank you so much for listening to this little podcast over the course of the year. We will see you in 2018. See you later. <laughs>